living the abundant Christian life. Our text is John 10.10. And John 10.10 says, The thief cometh not but for to steal, kill, and destroy. But I, Christ, am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Now, the more abundantly refers to what that word means, and we'll take a look at that. Your translation, if you have a modern translation, it may just say abundantly. But what it means is more abundantly. Now, let me start with a question. The Christian life. Would you agree that Christianity is a fabulous and fantastic proposition? You get abundant life here on this earth. You get a glorious life in heaven after you die. And you get eternal life in a new heavens and a new earth. Why do you think, humanly speaking, that more people aren't interested in getting to know God and getting in on all those benefits? Now, we understand that God has to call a person out of the unbelief of darkness before they're going to see these things. But just humanly speaking, He uses ordinarily means to accomplish that. And we would be the means. I think there's probably a reason. I think a lot of people who are Christians or maybe professors in Christ or churchgoers wear their faith like a bad headache. Ooh, they don't want to have their head detached. They know they need to keep it, but it's causing a lot of pain and discomfort. And it's almost like the Christian life is a burden instead of the blessing that God has intended it to be. Could it be that they are missing out on this message? Now, if you have your Bible, open it up to John 10.10. Let's read that little verse one more time. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. In the context there, the thief refers to phony shepherds, that is, false teachers and leaders whose ideas and philosophies show up right in the church. The false teacher, the principal false teacher, the originator of false teaching is Satan. It's interesting how each Sunday the Holy Spirit sets me up through Christopher. Satan is the guy who began the false teaching. And he has a lot of people who help him out with that. Because if he can bring confusion into the church, there are going to be all kinds of problems. Now, we see in John 8.44 that Satan is a liar. And he was a liar from the beginning. When Satan lies, he's speaking his native language. Now, sometimes he tells just a partial lie, but a truth that's only a half-truth is not the truth at all. Needless to say, God is not happy with false teachers. In Ezekiel, he says, The word of God came to me, speaking to Ezekiel, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who take care only of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? In contrast with those guys, the false teachers, Jesus came that we might have life. Now, life, 
Zoe here is the word. Life is an important word in the New Testament. When we see that word in the Greek language, we get our word zoo or zoology out of that. And a zoo is a place where you can go and see live animals as opposed to a museum where you might see some dead animals or some bones of animals. So we're talking about in the New Testament life as an absolute principle. God the Father, we're told, had life in himself. He imparted that life to the incarnate Son when Jesus came to this earth. Jesus manifested that light to the world. His life was the light of man. And then we can get in on that life if we're willing to repent of our sin, accept Christ, and through faith in Him, we can have this amazing life that God Himself has. It's marred by sin, there's no doubt about that, but it's restored through Jesus Christ. And one day it will be perfect. Right now it's a journey. Right now it's a battle sometimes. But one day it will be perfect righteousness. John 5.26, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in His Himself. At the beginning of John, you're familiar with the first chapter there, In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. If you have this life, you can see things the way God intended them to be. First John 1, 2. The life was manifested. We have seen it, John says, and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. This life is what we would call the real thing. If you read about that word in W. Vine's Expository Dictionary, he'll say that that word life is the equivalent of the gospel. It's the equivalent of faith. It's the equivalent of Christianity. It's what Christianity is all about. We're talking about life more abundantly. More abundantly. The word is parasites. And let's uh, get that in here. More abundantly. Parasites means something that is something that is over, something that is beyond, something that goes further. It means superabundant in quantity. It means superior in quality. It's life better than anything you can imagine. Now think with me for a moment about the Apostle Paul. Think about everything that he experienced. You know, in that chapter in Corinthians where he's talking about all the things he'd been through, the shipwrecks, the beatings, and so forth. And yet, with everything this guy endured, he was able to rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, rejoice. So this abundant life we're talking about is not dependent on people. It's not dependent on things, things maybe that don't work sometimes. It's not dependent on circumstances. It transcends all those things. We're not saying that it is an easy life. It wasn't easy for Paul. It wasn't easy for Christ. But there was that quality of life that carried him through all of those situations that he confronted along the way. 
It's not dependent upon people. It's not even dependent upon people in your own family. It's a relationship that you have with Christ. Satan does not want you to live that kind of life. Because if you do, he won't be able to get you doubting about things. He won't be able to get you discontent or discouraged. And that's exactly what he wants to do. So he comes as a robber. And he wants to rob you of the abundant life. He can't rob you of salvation if you really have it. So he wants to take the abundant life out of your life. Now, who knows what this word means? Yeah. Satan was the original kleptomaniac. And he comes to steal something from her li- our lives. What do you guess he wants to take? Before we answer that question, is it possible for Satan to rob you of something? Well, yes. If you open up some area of your thought life and give him a foothold, he wants to turn that into a stronghold and he wants to take away something out of your life. Here's Hudson losing that something right now. What do you think it is? Well, he can't get salvation. I think it's joy. I think that's what the enemy wants to steal from Christians. And if he can get that from enough Christians, Christians are going to be a pretty sad group in terms of their witness to the world. Because if he can get your joy, he's going to get everything else. He'll get your happiness. He'll get your witness. You're not going to want to be exporting it much if it's not even working for you. He'll get your desire for Bible study. He'd like to have your prayer life. If you're not joyful in Christ, you're probably not going to be praying too much except some of those flare prayers. He'll take your fellowship unless you can find somebody to join you in a great big pity party. He'll try to take your fulfillment in marriage and even the opportunity of singleness, which we see in 1 Corinthians 7 is to serve the Lord, the King, while you're single with wholehearted devotion. But sometimes people are single, just are unhappy, they can't wait to be married, and then people get married and they're unhappy wishing that they were single again. It's amazing how the devil likes to rob your joy, whatever condition of life you're in. And then there's one more thing. He wants to rob your hope that anything is going to ever be any better unless the people, things, and circumstances all get lined up right to your liking. And he knows that even if they do, you still won't be satisfied. Do you believe that? If you had everything you wanted in terms of the people, the way they treat you, the things in your life, you could buy anything, the circumstances, guess what? There's a guy in the Bible who had it all. His name was Mr. Rich Y. Ruler. Remember him? And he had all the wealth and everything, but there was one thing he didn't have. It was eternal life. And he went to Christ, and unfortunately he found out that he couldn't get it because the prince of this world had stolen his heart and had gotten him invested in the things of this world. Prince of the world, things of the world. 
Now, we're not saying that riches are evil by any means. They can be used for great good. But we're saying that riches can become an idol, which they did for the rich young ruler. The guy went away sadly, the Bible says. He didn't even have eternal life. But he still had the sadness that comes sometimes when people don't know Christ and they still have all the abundance of the world, but it doesn't satisfy. What does the Scripture say? Matthew six nineteen. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves, including the devil, can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And see, if your heart is in Christ, then you got a shot at that abundant life. Now, we can't cover it all today, but we're thinking about the way that Satan likes to tempt us and draw us away. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis introduces the white witch who lured Edmund into her sleigh on a cold day by offering him a hot drink and some Turkish delights. And she also promised him that he would be a prince in her kingdom. And maybe one day he would be the king of her whole realm. And he was sucked right into that. But then when that later day came, he discovered that he was only a slave and a pawn in her hands. And she turned on him with a vengeance. And he was robbed of his expectations of glory. And that's the way the Satan likes to do it. It looks pretty good for a little while. You see other people enjoying it. But then when the crop comes in, oh, it's not the abundant life. It's a terrible life. Well, next, the thief comes to kill. Here we are. Thuo. Kill. Now look, this word means to offer as a sacrifice. It can mean just kill, but it's used a number of times in the New Testament to offer a sacrificial offering. And we'll look at some of those places. Now, here's the deal. Satan doesn't just want to kill you in some natural disaster. Bolt of lightning strikes you, it's a tragedy, a storm comes along, and, and you're killed in a tornado or whatever. That's not what Satan is looking for. Satan is looking for you, your life, to be sacrificed for the sake of his kingdom. Maybe you would die like those guys in Waco did last week in a gang shootout. Maybe you would die from some overdose. Maybe you would die from some disease that came from living a perverted lifestyle. That's the kind of thing that he's talking about when he says, Satan, the, the devil, the Excuse me, the thief cometh but to for to steal, kill, and destroy. He doesn't want to wipe you out and get you out of the way. He wants your life to be a testimony for him. Let's take a look at a couple of verses here. Acts 14, Barnabas and Paul had just healed a guy who had been crippled from birth. And the crowd said, wow, man, look at this. This guy, Barnabas, must be Zeus and Paul must be Hermes. Let's get some offerings in here and sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. 
Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the front of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitude. And Paul and Barnabas had tore their clothes. Oh, don't do this. We're men just like you. But verse 18 says, With these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. That's our word right there. They didn't just want to kill these animals. These were sacrificial animals. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. That word is even used for the sacrifice of Christ. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, the old sin, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So Satan wants you to live fast, love hard, die young, leave a beautiful memory for the world. That's the kind of sacrifice that he would be looking for. Well, next we come to Apollome. Apollome, right here, is translated destroy. But again, it's a little different than we usually think of. Uh, we could say, you know, they destroyed that outbuilding with some tannerite. Meaning they just blew it to smithereens and there was nothing left. Well, this is not what that word means, this word apollome. The idea is not of distinct extinction, that something's just going to go out of existence, but it's of ruin and it's of loss. And when you get the wineskins, you remember Christ told about putting the new wine in the old wineskins, and then he said those wineskins would perish or they would be ruined. That's our word for destroy here. It means that they are marred so they can't be used. We've got another use of that word with the prodigal son. Luke fifteen twenty four. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost. There's our word. He has been found. Now they begin to make merry. The son didn't go out of existence. He had just been robbed of the abundant life that he lived back at his dad's house. Isn't it amazing how your perspective can change? Life wasn't so abundant when he was back there. But when he got to the pig pen, it looked a little more abundant to him. And the thing that got his attention was one day he was famished for some good food. And he said, I think I will go home. And he that was lost was found. And he went back home and began experiencing that abundant life as his forgiving dad was waiting for him. Now we can learn something about this abundant life from that story. You can have two siblings living in the same loving home, and one may be living the abundant life in Christ, and the other may be being robbed of any kind of contentment or joy or anything else. It depends on what's going on in the heart. It doesn't depend on the circumstances. This guy had good circumstances at home before he went out to the pig pen or the high living that he was looking for. So it really depends on what's in our hearts. Scripture in John 6, 27 says, Do not work for food which perishes. There's our word again. Food which perishes, but the food which endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. If you're living the abundant life, you're going to be feeding on this food which does not perish. In fact, this living water, this bread of life, 
is going to give you a life that would be of greater quality than the lives of people in the world, than the lives even of many Christians or those who would claim to be Christians. Now, the food didn't go out of existence. It just became spoiled. It became inedible. It had to be thrown away. That's what Satan likes. He wants you young people to invest in some ideas, some thoughts. And then maybe get into some things that aren't really too bad, but they're just not the best, certainly, according to Scripture. But Satan is always going somewhere. And then later on, when that lifestyle becomes prominent in your life, even in your thought life, because if it's in your thought life, you're just waiting for an opportunity for it to come out in real life. Later on, it becomes a lifestyle for many people, sometimes even Christians, and you become enslaved to that lifestyle. And then you don't like it very well. In fact, it may become obnoxious to you, but you can't get out of it. And then your lifestyle becomes the lyrics for some country and western songs. That would be sad, wouldn't it? I went back to my fourth wife for the third time to give her a second chance to make a first-class fool out of me. Or maybe how about all my exes live in Texas. If your phone don't ring, it's me calling you up. See, it's talking about the sadness and the loneliness, and yet they keep going back. They can't get out of it. I still miss you, baby, but my aim is getting better. That's terrible. There's a reference to the domestic violence that often accompanies this lifestyle. It's the call that police hate to get because somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody may even get killed. And if you're a married woman living in the United States and you happen to become the victim of a homicide, the probability is it's your spouse who would have committed that violence against you. That is terrible in the richest nation of the world. We have everything, but we are not satisfied. And of course, you couldn't be satisfied without Christ, but if you have Christ, you've still got to be living this abundant life. You've got to be doing things the way He wants us to do. Now, we don't do them perfectly, but we keep coming back to it. How sad is that commentary on our culture? Well, we live in a world of hyper embellishment advertising. Hyper embellishment advertising. You see it all over the place. Discover how to get a beautiful whiter smile instantly. Use Max White One Optic Toothpaste with optic brighteners that reflect light to brighten your teeth instantly after brushing. A single smile will bedazzle the opposite gender and fill them with joy and desire. Now, we don't believe a bit of that, do we? But usually we buy the product just in case. They might, they might be on to something here. Well, get broad-spectrum El Clino, harnessing the power of moisture-rich super soy enzymes to clear away blemishes and improve the health of your complexion. Oil-free, hypoallergenic, non-commodogenic, that means it won't clog up your pores, and gentle enough to use every day. Only $19.99 in stores everywhere. Hey, forget it. Rub some avocado on your face. It's only 25 cents a piece at H-E-B. Well, we've got all this advertising. Is the Christian life 
just more hype like we see on television? Is it just, um, you know, we're promising all this abundant stuff and God doesn't really deliver on that? What about Ephesians 3.20? Now, you might want to look at this um, verse in your Bible and you might even want to mark it in your Bible. It's a good one. Ephesians 3.20. Now unto Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly, exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works in us, unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Now we had, uh, here's our word here, parasos. Now we've got hyperparasos, or huperparasuo. That's our word there that we're translating out of that verse, do exceeding abundantly. So let's just, uh, we had more abundantly up here. Oh, got the wrong color. Let's get uh, exceeding abundantly. Now this is uh, taken to a higher degree here. Exceeding abundantly. Not just more abundantly, but exceeding abundantly. What does that mean? Abundantly. That means something that is a greater degree than we even saw here in John 10.10. It means over and above. It's something that's just spilling out here. It's to cause someone to overflow with something or to be present in greater abundance or to abound exceedingly. You see that guy and you say, wow, look at that. That's incredible. Now, not that we're trying to put on a show for other people, but this is what this abundant life is all about. Here's the use of the word in Romans 5.20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That's our word, much more abound. What in the world does that mean? Here's what I think it means. The Ten Commandments were given so that all of us could see the extent of our failure to obey God. But the more we see our sinfulness, the more we see God's abounding grace forgiving us. Incredible. God's abounding grace overflowing in abundance. It sounds to be good to be true. Too good to be true. It sounds almost like that bogus advertising that we're talking about. But is this written by some marketing guru in ancient Israel or is this the inspired Word of God? Well, we know that it is the inspired Word of God. He must be telling us the truth. It must be possible to live this life. So why can't we believe that Word? Why can't we believe God and trust in His Word? The reason is, I think, we don't know Him well enough. Now, how do you get married? How do you fall in love and get married. Well, you meet someone and you have a desire to be with that person. And so you get with that person and you like them better and better the more that you're with them. So you spend time with them, you invest time with them, and all of a sudden your emotions toward them begin to grow and develop and you love that person. And then you learn to trust that person because you know them and you love them. What if you could only have one hour a week with that person that you really love? Or maybe two. We'll give you two hours a week. How would that work? You wouldn't like that very well 
because you like to be with that person, just to get to know them better, uh, just to get into their life. And the more you get in there, the better you're able to trust them. That's the way it should be in marriage. Now, uh, J.B. Phillips, who did the J.B. Phillips uh, translation of the Scripture, in his little book tells us about that your God is too small. He tells us about some misconceptions that people have because they don't really know God and they don't really know the Word. See if you recognize any of these. Not among us, of course. The resident policeman. Too many people, God is equated with their conscience. He's either accusing them or excusing them all the time. That really sounds more like the devil, doesn't it? The accuser of the brethren. Uh, number two, the parental hangover. Their concept of God is equated, is almost invariably founded upon a child's ideas of his father. Too bad if your dad stayed mad or sad all the time. You got a bad picture of God there. The grand old man. God is a very old gentleman living in heaven. Unfortunately, he's not only old, he's also old-fashioned. And he was only truly relevant in the days of old. That's pretty sad. The heavenly bosom, God of the getaway. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. God is a form of psychological escapism for people who can't cope with life any other way. I do like the hymn, by the way. The pale Galilean. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon your little child. Jesus is kind of a mild-mannered, melancholic introvert leading a morose movement to quench everybody's joy and freedom. The holy hippie. A drifter with long hair and sandals who goes around bad-mouthing the establishment and practicing civil disobedience. Is that what God is? Here is uh, J.I. Packer, Knowing God. We are so cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it is disappointing, a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfold as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. Now we know you can't lose your salvation, but you can certainly lose any joy and happiness that you have. He does go on to say that you can't just know about God, you've got to know God in an intimate, personal way. So it's not just um, knowing the Bible, it's knowing God, investing time with Him. Now, the more you study God and get to know Him, guess what? You'll feel better in the long run about everything else in your life except your sin. Of course, till you deal with it if you're a true believer. And when you deal with it, you're going to feel better about that. Of course, you'll probably have to break some old thought patterns that are hanging on from the world. We call them strongholds, a mindset or a way of thinking that is opposed to Scripture and opposed to God. Those things have to be destroyed, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 10. We have to tear down strongholds. And not just this destroy, we've got to get them out of existence in our lives. Now, really, this knowing God is just common sense, isn't it? Suppose you were going to have life or death brain surgery and this was serious business. Would you want to get to know the surgeon? 
maybe have a little meeting with him, maybe discuss some things, see what kind of a guy he is. You would hope maybe he's a Christian. And you could pray together. What if you were going into battle? You would want to know something about your commanding officer. And is he going to be sitting back at headquarters just directing you up on the battle line? Or where is he going to be? What's he going to be doing? That's the reason the Stonewall Brigade was able to accomplish some amazing exploits because the men knew and loved old Jack. And they knew that he would be going into battle with them. So it's the same thing. We want to know God. And if we get to know our commander very well on intimate basis, it's going to be a wonderful life. Suppose you lived in Germany and you were coming to the United States for a visit. And you had heard that there was a quaint little German village somewhere in the hill country of Texas. And you decided that you wanted to visit there. And so you're sitting in the coffee shop and looking at your map, enjoying your latte, and a guy comes in and sees you looking at the map and he says, what are you doing, planning a trip? Yep, I'm going to Fredericksburg, Texas. And he looks and he sees you're in Texas and he said, whoa, don't believe that map. That's wrong. Fredericksburg is not in Texas. It's in Louisiana, South Louisiana, Bayou Lafourche. That's where Fredericksburg is. You can see alligators walking up and down Main Street. And he's very convinced. Now, you can see anything when you're snorting a little crack or maybe getting a little toot on some marjoweenie or whatever you're into. Uh, people can tell you anything. But he says, get rid of that map. That map is wrong. That map tells you to go six miles and turn east and go 100 miles. But I know a guy who went 50 miles and turned west and went 300 miles, and he said it was great. And that's what you ought to do too. You need to throw out the map because your map is faulty. Now, here's the map. And there are all kind of people out there telling you why the map won't work. There are even Christians. They claim to be Christians. Sometimes men even in ministry who are telling you why the map doesn't mean what it says that it means. So you've got to be careful with that. You would never be fooled by a guy like that, would you? Why? Because you live in Fredericksburg. You come to Fredericksburg to church. You know that it's not French, it's German. You see Texas flags and boots all over the place. This couldn't be South Louisiana. You would not be fooled. Well, when you get to know God according to His Word, then you don't have to be fooled by all these people that have all these strange ideas about the Bible and about God and about who He is. You wouldn't be fooled about Fredericksburg with any amount of tourist propaganda or a government edict or even if Bobby Jindal offered you a personal invitation to come down and visit. You wouldn't be fooled because you know. And that's what we want it to be with Christ. Here's what, uh, again, J.I. Packer has to say. After all, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Anyone who is actually following a recognized road will not be too worried if he hears non-travelers telling each other that no such road exists. Did you get that? Non-travelers. They're not on the road with Christ, and they're telling you the road doesn't even exist. How would they know? Now, back to the advertising quickly here. Isaiah 64, 4. Pretty good verse. 
For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, nor hath the eye seen, O God, besides thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Whoa, that's the Old Testament. Yeah, but 1 Corinthians 2, 9. But as it is written, and now Paul's going to quote that same verse in the New Testament. I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. You see, if you love Him, you can trust Him, you can wait on Him. And that's what He wants us to do. Well, why can't we believe that God is telling the truth about this life that is exceeding abundantly above all that we can think or ask? Let's summarize. In closing, we do have an enemy who would like to knock us out of the abundant life permanently or at least until we die and go to heaven. Uh, That way we'd be miserable uh, until we get there. And uh, many people seem to fall in that category. The enemy likes to work through false ideas, faulty doctrine, and fabricated theology. And he has an army of false teachers and some of them are just confused. They just don't get it. They don't know the Bible. They don't know God. Some of them may be believers, but they may be misguided in their understanding of Scripture. But Christ offers this abundant life to those who will follow Him in sanctification and avoid the enemy getting these footholds that turn into strongholds, that turn into a lifestyle down the road. Let me just give you one idea quickly on the disinformation that comes. This will be the kind of thing you hear sometimes from Christians. See if you believe it's true. If you force yourself to do something you don't feel like doing, you are a hypocrite. True or false? Well, I say that is absolutely false. Sometimes we don't feel like doing the right thing, like getting up out of bed in the morning and having devotion time or coming to church on a rainy day. But why do we do it? We do it because Christ did it. Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane talking to His Father. Ooh, He didn't feel like being crucified. He had seen crucifixion, I'm sure, as a boy many times. Isn't there any other way we can accomplish this atonement other than the cross? But no, we've got to go to the cross. He went to the cross. Why did He go to the cross when He didn't feel like doing it? Well, it was the right thing to do. And many times we have to do the right thing when we don't feel... What mother feels like getting about a bed in the middle of the night and seeing about some child who's not feeling well? You do it because it's the right thing to do. That's just some of the disinformation that is out there. Oh, you'd be a hypocrite if you do that. Whatever. Now, you might be a hypocrite, but it depends on the attitude of your heart, not what you're doing. If you want to live a happy, joyful life, you've got to get to know God in a very personal, intimate way. Quickly, Three ideas on how to do that quickly. First, study the Bible. You're doing that. And write down a statement about God. How about this one? God is love. There's a simple statement about God. It comes right out of the Scripture. Number two, take that statement and think about it. Mull over it in your mind. Turn it around. Look at it in a different way. Look up some of the words. You've got all kind of helps in doing that right on the Internet. Find out what it means. Find out what love is. Love is not an emotion. It's doing the right thing in the best interest of others, even without regard to feeling, even if it means being crucified. And then dwell on that, whatever you're thinking about, 
And number three, turn the statement into a prayer and praise to God. That's pretty simple. The Bible calls it meditation. And it promises that you'll be successful in what you do. And here are some verses in the corners here, Joshua 1.8. 1 Kings doesn't mention meditation, but it talks about the experience of a guy telling his son the kind of life he ought to live, a guy who has meditated on Scripture. Psalm 1, James 1.25, New Testament, meditation is a good thing. Simple, study the Bible, write down some statement about God, think about it, mull over it, dwell on it. Turn it around different ways. See what the words mean and then turn it into prayer and praise to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing book that you've given us, the Scripture. And we thank you that you promise us in there uh, abundant life, life more abundantly. Not only that, you promise us life exceeding abundant life and we thank you that that is your word and that is true but lord we are weak as paul said but when we are weak we admit that then we are strong in christ because your power is made perfect in weakness and we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us in our weakness lord i pray for someone here today who is uh, struggling with some challenge in life, maybe some circumstance, some person or people, maybe things that aren't working out so well. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give them your grace to rise above the circumstances, to rise above those people who may not be behaving themselves or whatever it may be. We thank you that that's possible. And we ask as we embark on this study of the abundant life, that uh, in six weeks, eight weeks from now, we might know you much, much better than we do today. We know that we can never plumb the depths of the knowledge of Christ, but we want to give it a good try while we're here on this earth. So guide us in our studies, help us to encourage one another, and we thank you for the privilege we have of being your children and studying your word, and we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.